Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein. And this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the world. Today, classical gas. Partner Jeremy Jost joins us to bring us up to date on everything that's been happening in the gas industry. At a big picture, this policy has a goal of subsidising continued use of a fossil fuel. Many other policies that the government is implementing are attempting to encourage substitution away from fossil fuels. I have not seen any public engagement or discussion from the ACCC or the government as to the intersection of those climate change policies and this policy which has the objective of subsidising the price of a fossil fuel energy source. Classical gas is, of course, the well-known guitar piece composed by Mason Williams and performed on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, isn't it? It is a well-known guitar piece, but I'm pretty sure it was composed and performed by Lisa Simpson in the classic season four episode, Last Exit to Springfield, as requested here by Lenford Lenny Leonard. They have the plant, but we have the power. Now do classical gas! something in there about classical economics as well. There was a lot in that episode about labour economics as well as the healthcare system as workers in the nuclear plant go on strike after Mr Burns tries to take away their dental plans. This was like 30 years before the US Labour Secretary Robert Reich appeared on the show to sing a duet about the death of the middle class with Hugh Jackman. Well, I'm sure everyone's looking forward to an episode full of Simpsons references. Thank you. But first, Matt, what's been happening around the grounds? What's been happening around the literal grounds is, of course, the FIFA Women's World Cup. Of course. Held across Australia and New Zealand in what was probably the most successful sporting event in the history of the universe. Yeah, or any parallel universe, which may or may not exist. It was fabulous, wasn't it? And the Matildas delivered the highest television ratings in Australian history. And the total attendance was just under 2 million. So best month of football ever. It was. But I have to ask, on behalf of listeners, did the ticketing fiasco work itself out? What were your seats like, Moya? Well, I got to sit with a lot of the Matildas alumni at most games, which was um, extremely orderly, involved no drinking or missing flags or being out after curfew. I'm sure. At least that's what we told the management. So great fun. But the people who I advised to buy Category 1 tickets early on weren't too happy with me because they were up in the nosebleeds while those who bought later got better seats. Go figure. Or go FIFA. How about you? We had pretty cheap Category 3 seats behind the goal, which I think isn't usually the fanciest spot. But when Sam Kerr blazed straight towards us and slotted that goal against England in the semi-finals, they felt like million-dollar seats. Yeah, it was the best four minutes of the whole tournament, wasn't it? 75,000 people on their feet cheering and spinning their scarves in the air. At least I was. Shame we lost that game, but I'm sure we'll get them next time. Till it's done. And of course, the success of the tournament and the immense popularity of the national team has had consumer law implications, Mm. with the National Anti-Scam Centre warning Matilda's fans not to fall for any of the scams that were targeting them, including fraudulent ticket sales and fake links to live streams. What a low act targeting Matilda's fans, of all people. ACCC Deputy Chair Katrina Lowe said that Understandably, Australians are inspired by the phenomenal success of the Matildas, here, here, but fans should be very careful when last-minute ticket shopping for hugely popular events such as the World Cup finals. Yeah, and I felt very smug about buying those cheap tickets last October and getting to see the Matildas play twice by a complete fluke. Yeah, well done ignoring my advice to buy the fancy seats that turned out to be nosebleeds. What else is happening? Well, Treasurer Jim Chalmers and podcast guest Assistant Minister Andrew Lee 
have announced a brand new review of competition policy aimed at building a more dynamic and productive economy. Wait, didn't we just have one of those? It sure feels like it, but actually it's been almost 10 years since the Harper Review, and this one's going to be a bit different. It's going to run for two years, and there's not going to be a final report. Instead, there'll be a task force that'll give continuous advice to government so progress can be made over time. So it's not going to be a fusion cell or a hit squad? Dr. Lee called it a crack team of experts, but I don't think that's an official title. The team will include former ACCC chair Rod Sims and also Marcus Betsy, who's being seconded from the ACCC as its chief advisor. And one of the things it's going to be looking at is the ACCC's proposal for reform of the merger approval processes. You mean the proposal that Rod Sims came up with when he was chair of the ACCC? Isn't that like getting to mark your own homework or run the VAR on your own shot at goal? Yeah, I mean, it may depend on who else is on the task force, but fair to say there'll be at least one fan of the proposal or something like it. They'll also be looking at non-compete clauses and competition issues raised by new technologies, the net zero transformation and growth in the care economy. Hmm. And I see that Dr. Lee called on the spirit of the Matildas to support the new competition review. The story of the Matildas, he said, it really is a story of how competition can drive achievement. But yet, if we look at our business sector, we haven't seen the same degree of dynamism that the Matildas show on the sporting field. I mean, that's a pretty high bar, isn't it? Uh, I'm not sure my nerves could take a business sector that was as dynamic as a Matildas game. Yeah, definitely not if it came to a penalty shootout. What else is happening? Well, we have new record penalties in both competition and consumer law cases. On the competition side, Blue Scope Steel has been ordered to pay a civil penalty of $57.5 million for attempting to induce a price-fixing arrangement with competitors in the distribution of flat steel products. So that sounds like a big penalty for what was only an attempt. Although I know that in criminal law, an attempt generally carries the same maximum penalty as the actual crime. Yeah, and that's not universally appreciated in either sense of that word, as we hear here from legal commentator Robert Underdunk Terwilliger Jr. Convicted of a crime I didn't even commit. <laughs> attempted murder. Now, honestly, what is that? Do they give a Nobel Prize for attempted chemistry, do they? Oh, there we go. And the ACCC has taken a few actions against attempts to induce cartel conduct recently in cases against Delta Building Automation. ARM Architecture and QTech. Yeah, it can be a really useful option when you might have trouble showing there's an arrangement or understanding with the commitment or the meeting of minds that you need to show that. Hasn't always worked in the past, but the ACCC has been a lot more successful lately. But here, the fact that it was just an attempt had an impact on penalties under the old three upfront rule. Yeah, the ACCC said that the maximum penalty should be 10% of Blue Scope's turnover, which would have meant $400 million for each attempt. But because of the specific wording of the triple threat penalty provisions, to get there it had to show that Blue Scope had obtained a benefit from the conduct, but that the value of the benefit couldn't be determined. And normally you think there'd be some benefit from the conduct, otherwise you wouldn't bother. But then what's the value of an attempt if it doesn't come to anything? Yeah, that's the question. The ACCC said there was a benefit in the increased likelihood that Blue Scope could raise or maintain prices. But the court said no, there had to be an actual benefit and not just a likelihood. And so the maximum penalty here was just $10 million for each attempt. And that's still a record competition law penalty. So the ACCC is going to be happy about that. But it could have been a lot higher. Yeah, though maybe not as high as the new record consumer protection penalty of $438 million, which was just given to the Phoenix Institute for Unconscionable and Misleading Conduct. That's not a name that fills you with confidence, is it? After all that ASIC and the tax office have done to warn us about Phoenix companies. No, and Phoenix is now already insolvent, so it could potentially become a Phoenix company itself. Right. Well, this is another case of bad conduct in the government's vocational education and training program, 
which seemed to rip off students and taxpayers in equal amounts, didn't it? Yeah, and those cases have resulted in more than $600 million in penalties already, plus more in repayment orders, and there are still some more cases in the pipeline. And we're also hearing some more big numbers around the ACCC's new case against Qantas. We are. The ACCC is alleging that Qantas cancelled a bunch of flights, like thousands of flights, and then took too long to tell customers their flights had been cancelled, and even kept selling tickets on flights they knew weren't going to happen, sometimes for weeks. And obviously a cancelled flight can have a whole cascade of impacts on your plans as well as financial implications, so you'd want to find out as soon as possible, ideally before you buy the ticket. You would. Uh, The ACCC says the cancellations were often for reasons within Qantas's control, like to optimise the network or manage their takeoff and landing slots, which are really important at certain airports. Mm -hmm. And that was all fine, but it was misleading to keep selling tickets and failing to inform customers when there was no reasonable expectation that they'd be able to deliver. And this is being compared to the fee-for-no-service scandal in the financial advice sector, where customers were paying for ongoing advice that they just weren't getting. It is, and here the ACCC is looking to double the penalty from the Volkswagen Dieselgate case, which of course came in at $125 million, even after the parties had agreed on $75 million. Mm, The only way is up. And I see that the ACCC have published new guidelines on the level of civil penalties they'll ask the courts to impose, whether that's by agreement with the parties or on their own. Are there any big changes there? I mean, it kind of confirms what we know about the ACCC's approach and also the approach that the courts have been taking in recent cases. Not always the same thing, are they? Not always. Like The ACCC says the primary purpose of civil penalties is deterrence, while most of the High Court comes pretty close to saying that's the only purpose. The ACCC says it'll seek a higher penalty where there's loss or damage suffered, and that's consistent with the legislation, but isn't always easy to square with the court's focus on strict deterrence. I guess you could say the more loss is suffered, then the more important it is to deter that kind of conduct and the more deterrence you need? Yeah, I think that's it. Not every judge agrees that civil penalties are only for deterrence, of course, and we'll probably get some more clarity from the courts on all this before too long especially considering how central these civil penalties are across the regulatory system these days. I'm sure we will. And while we're waiting, Moya, you recently spoke to partner Jeremy Joyce about what's been happening in gas regulation. I did, and Jeremy had a lot to say about the difference between the East Coast and West Coast gas scenes, who knew, what's in the mandatory gas code, and the tension between making gas more affordable to customers and trying to move them towards renewables. Let's take a listen. Welcome to the pod to Jeremy Jose, who's a partner here at Gilbert and Tobin, and he's going to talk to us about the mandatory code of conduct and gas market reforms. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you very much, Moira. It's great to be back. Why do we have a mandatory code of conduct for gas? It's an interesting question, and forgive me if I go back a few years. So the Australian gas markets have been subject to significant change over the past decade from a domestic-focused isolated market to a globally linked commodity export market. Um, And about two thirds of gas produced on Australia's East Coast is now exported. And that has brought a significant focus on the impact of being exposed to global pricing trends on domestic users. About two thirds of gas on Australia's East Coast is used in either industrial or power generation use. And so those sectors are most exposed to the impact of gas prices. So the viability of domestic industry, manufacturing and power generation, and to some extent household use in the context of a changing gas market and one where prices have been going up has been a matter of interest for a long time. And East Coast gas is somehow differently treated to West Coast gas. Why have we got this East-West thing happening? 
Absolutely. Well, despite um, our various crazy plans of ministers over the years to physically connect Western Australia with the rest of the country with a giant gas pipe. That's a very long gas pipe. Very, very long and very expensive. But those markets do remain physically separate. The west coast of Australia, off the northwest shelf in particular, has for a long time had globally interlinked export gas markets. And as part of the policy dimensions relating to that gas export, they have a gas reservation policy, which requires gas exporters to commit a proportion of their gas to the domestic market. So when you say reservation, it means you're reserving it for domestic users. For, for us, in other words, for me and they, you. They, they, need to be, they need to sell that proportion to domestic customers and are not allowed to export it. Okay. So that means you get different prices happening? Yeah, much different. So typically, Western Australia's domestic gas price has been significantly lower than international prices. It's a de facto subsidy of domestic gas use by the gas producers as a, as a sort of social cost of allowing that gas export activity to occur. So how does the regulation apply differently to the East and West Coast? The West Coast regulation is done under a state-based legislative regime. It's not administered through the federal government and the jurisdictions on the East Coast don't have equivalent reservation policies and didn't implement them prior to gas export being developed and occurring on the East Coast. So there's no equivalent domestic gas reservation policy in the Australia's East Coast. So that's where the mandatory code of conduct comes in, right? That's right, Moya. So in response to significant increases in prices over the last year, which have been particularly triggered by the global energy insecurity following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there has been even greater levels of concern about the price and availability of gas in Australia's east coast. So as part of the government's response to energy affordability issues towards the back end of last year, the government imposed a temporary price cap and flagged that they would be consulting on and developing what has become the mandatory gas code of conduct. There's some really important exemptions, many of which have been developed over the course of consultation on the mandatory code. So the mandatory code doesn't apply to a range of participants in the gas supply chain, including smaller domestic-focused gas producers. It also doesn't apply to gas retailers. Very importantly, too, there is a mechanism for the minister to grant an exemption and the minister will do that having regard to a range of factors. But in essence, the minister is looking for an effective commitment by the domestic gas producers that are subject to the code to supply a sufficient volume of gas to the domestic market to avoid a domestic supply shortfall. So how do they figure out a price under this mandatory code of conduct? So the ACCC has been monitoring supply and production and extraction costs in the East Coast market over many years as part of its ongoing gas monitoring role. And the government took advice from the ACCC last year when it imposed the interim emergency price cap and was advised that $12 was a sufficient price uh, to account for in the government's view, a sufficient incentive to develop and, and supply domestic gas. It, it wasn't a process that was subject to consultation with industry. The $12 number was chosen very rapidly and then became the benchmark that was enshrined in the interim price cap. 
And that has now rolled over into a, a mandatory price cap. So wait a minute, this $12, is this the price that they think I can reasonably afford or that industry, industrial users can reasonably afford? Or is it the price at which producers will be able to remuneratively make enough gas or produce enough gas to satisfy demand? How, like, which are the fixed parts and which are the moving parts in this calculation? That's a, that's a really good question, Moira. And I think it's fair to say that it's not one that has been subject to deep and rigorous analytical modelling through these processes. And, and the government has not clearly explained what the purpose of the $12 figure is. There's been general reference to it being sufficient to incentivise domestic supply. But as you say, supply and demand are not static concepts. And if the price goes up, then there will be more supply and less demand and uh, vice versa. So it's not clear that the intersection between price and demand has been taken into account in these assessments. Well, there's a very big policy issue here lurking in the background, isn't there, about the objective to get to net zero. So is that any part of this calculation? Again, a, a really interesting question, Moya. So Australia, of course, has set and another new Labor government is is looking for legislative tools to meet ambitious climate change targets and emissions reductions targets to address the climate change emergency that we're all all facing and trying to deal with. At a big picture, this policy has a goal of subsidising continued use of a fossil fuel. Now, gas as a fossil fuel has a lower emissions profile than some other fossil fuels. Depending on your, your calculations, it, it may be about 50% lower carbon intensity than coal. And encouraging substitution away from coal towards gas is an important transitional step in our journey towards reducing emissions. Many other policies that the government is implementing at the moment are attempting to encourage substitution away from fossil fuels and towards fuels or energy sources with lower emissions profiles. I have not seen any public engagement or discussion from the ACCC or the government as to the intersection of those climate change policies and this policy, which has the objective of subsidising the price and, and lowering the price of a high emissions and, and fo fossil fuel energy source. So the minister, Chris Bowen, is the minister for energy and climate change, isn't he? He is. So you'd hope that at a policy level, at least, at a ministerial level, at a political level, that these two questions would be looked at hand in hand. But what you're saying is that it's not evident from the implementation of the regulatory process that that is in fact happening. Mm. Just to take a step back, a couple of years ago, the AER in its regulation of gas pipelines um, put out a think piece that basically said, well, we're regulating these assets over a long time horizon. And in that time horizon, we expect the economy's move towards combating climate change and reducing emissions will result in significant changes to the use of those assets and will have a commensurate impact on the way we regulate these assets. I haven't seen the ACCC look to grapple with those kind of questions in relation to gas. Now, as I said, gas remains an important and, and will retain an important role in a transition to a, a lower carbon economy. So I'm not suggesting that the ACCC should assume that gas demand will dry up or there won't be any role for gas in the economy. But the question of whether or not users of gas 
should be insulated from the price of that commodity and not pay the full market value for that commodity. And in effect, we should try to get producers of that commodity to subsidize use of that commodity through artificial price caps um, and how that sits with our desire to encourage substitution towards other and lower emissions sources of energy is not a policy question that I've seen discussed or explored. Aren't price signals one of the things that can help industry or guide industry away from the use of fossil fuels or onto the use of less carbon intensive fossil fuels? Aren't they an important part of the transition process? Yeah. I mean, when an economist thinks about the impact of a price change, there's two effects. One is the income effect. So if, if the price of my inputs go up, I have less money to spend. A greater share of my wallet goes towards uh, that. And so I'm poorer. My overall income has gone down in that sense. The other effect is a substitution effect, which is that I'm getting a, a signal um, uh, from that increased price um, uh, that I should think about substituting to alternative sources of fuel. And often in policy settings, it's useful to distinguish between an income and a substitution effect. Uh, Australia might wish to maintain certain types of domestic manufacturing or might wish to insulate industry in a temporary sense from global supply shocks. And that's a very normal policy goal. We don't necessarily want our our industry to bear the full or our households to bear the full brunt of a global energy crisis. And so maintaining income levels for those industries or those households through payments that uh, compensate for the higher energy prices is a perfectly understandable policy goal. But it is possible to divorce a income effect from a substitution effect by making transfer payments or support payments that are not linked to the price of the commodity or not linked to use of the particular commodity and to allow the price effect to encourage substitution. And that would, in effect, allow the signal that's been sent here that there are uncertainties about global production and supply of fossil fuels that might encourage and and cause people to think about whether there are alternate ways of of generating energy or or getting their fuel that might also be more aligned with the government's climate change objective. So you're saying that if they felt they needed to subsidise an industry for the sake of building transition time or whatever, then there's, there's other ways to do that other than messing with the price because that stifles price signals that are important ones to a range of other market participants. That's right, yes. Is it a bit much to expect the ACCC to manage that though? I mean, you've said that it hasn't appeared in their analysis, but is it their job to figure out energy policy and apply it in a way that will find us a path to net zero or is that the job of someone else in the system? I think you're absolutely right that um, it really isn't the role. I think you, you correctly pointed to the title of the minister as being the Minister for Climate Change and Energy, and and the thinking about those policy settings should really be done at the ministerial level. When I worked at the ACCC, um, my final role was on their 2015-16 gas inquiry, and one of the things that we had to think about was that we were being given a mandate by the government to look at measures to uh, maintain the security of domestic gas supply. And, and the closest we came in, the, in our report, or the ACCC came in its report um, at that time, was to consider whether or not gas moratoria or moratoria that prevented domestic gas development should be reassessed or lifted. 
And because the ACCC had been given a mandate to focus on the supply side of the equation, the ACCC made a recommendation that blanket moratoria be lifted. The ACCC was not tasked with sort of considering the broader social or climate impacts of that change, and the ACCC recognised that was outside of its domain. And and I think that that really is the case here. Mm. But there's certainly a role for regulatory tools to be brought to bear, right? I mean, if you, for example, want electricity transmission networks to be put in place for solar or wind, then things like uh, land access are important, for example. Yes, um, and uh, there's a whole suite of regulatory systems that need to be coordinated to facilitate our climate change objectives. And one of the, the challenges that the whole system is grappling with at the moment is that there are all these different regulatory processes. So you've got, as you say, land access and planning rules, which are administered by the state government, but those guiding and, and those having an impact on the ability to deploy transmission lines that can unlock the federal government and the, the overall social goal of transitioning towards greater renewables. And uh, coordinating all those different parts of the systems and making sure that the different regulatory frameworks are working together for that common objective is one of the struggles Australia has faced in our overall journey towards a a lower carbon future. Well, it might be uh, easy to forget about the urgency of this problem, but as we look to the Northern Hemisphere and the, the terrible heat waves, it really is a reminder that these problems are too urgent to be put on the back burner. Absolutely. Um, We're seeing record temperatures. There's uh, extraordinary weather um, and temperatures happening in the Northern Hemisphere. I think Australia will get a taste of that um, over this summer as we move out of the the La Nina pattern, which has been affecting us the last few years. Mm. Well, lawyers can't solve everything, but it wouldn't be a bad start to get these regulatory systems working more in sync with each other by the sounds of it. Absolutely. And, And a need to apply the lens of thinking about how does this fit with the overall picture and the and the big picture um, in all of these decisions is really important. Indeed. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and get to the latest wisdom and updates on the energy challenge of Net Zero. Thank you. Thank you, Moya. What a great interview. Chair Gina Cascott-Leib just gave a speech as well at an energy law conference, which also gives a good summary of the recent history from the ACCC's point of view. Yes, and she emphasised that we need more competition in upstream gas production to make sure we have enough domestic gas. The ACCC says that needs to come from increased investment from domestic suppliers as well as excess gas from the Queensland LNG producers. That's right, and they're the kind of things that the gas market code was meant to incentivise, though there are other options as well, like the domestic gas trigger. Hasn't the problem always been, though, that the true costs of producing and consuming energy, like the cost of the environment, are not captured in the price. It's all externalities. That's right. And that's what the short-lived carbon tax was really trying to solve, even if it wasn't a carbon tax. It's hard to see how the price cap really helps in that respect. Yeah, it's an interesting time for the energy mix, isn't it? Because meanwhile, the New South Wales government is looking to keep the erring coal-fired power station open for a bit longer. And the opposition is literally looking at nuclear options, like small modular reactors. I mean, as long as you've got good dental plans there. Well, looks like we're back where we started. But before we go, what are you seeing in your crystal ball? Well, after a lot of anticipation, Treasury has finally opened its consultation on the ACCC's call for a new prohibition on unfair trading practices. Yeah, we had a whole episode about this recently featuring a panel discussion with ACCC Chair Gina Cascott-Lieb and consumer advocate Jared Brody 
on why we need a new provision. We did. Treasury's playing a pretty straight bat so far. It's identified that the ACCC and consumer groups in particular are advocating for such a change, and it's put forward four options. Let me guess. First option, always no change, right? As always. The second option is to rework the definition of unconscionable conduct in the Australian consumer law to try and broaden it out to include more conduct that may be harsh or unfair, but doesn't quite meet the court's test of what's unconscionable. And that's what, conduct that is so far outside community or business norms that it offends the conscience? That's right. Uh, And the concern is uh, that as long as the prohibition is tied to that language of unconscionability, the courts could have trouble moving away from these kind of 17th century ideas. Yeah, I mean, something that's unconscionable probably has to offend the conscience in some way. It's right there in the name. It is in the name. I mean, the courts have moved some distance away from the traditional view of what's unconscionable, but it's not yet clear how much further they can go. So the next option must be hmm, a new prohibition on something like unfair trading practices? That's right, uh, whatever that ends up being called and however that's defined. And that could potentially replace the existing prohibitions or could be in addition to them, possibly with different approaches to enforcement. We do like to go with belt and braces, don't we? We do. And the fourth option is to couple that general prohibition with some additional prohibitions on specific practices. That's things like dark patterns or misleading omissions. So it sounds like we're still a way off a draft provision or anything like that. I think we are. The consultation paper does a really good job summarising the different approaches of the other jurisdictions, which really shows there's a lot of variety out there and it's still not that clear which is the best way to go. And we've got a solid consultation period on this one. Submissions are due by 29 November this year. It's only fair. It'll be a big change if it happens. It's also worth noting that the clock is ticking on unfair terms in standard form contracts, which will be illegal and subject to the supersized triple threat penalties from the 9th of November. And the ACCC's put out a notice advising companies to check their standard form contracts and make sure they're not unfair. Good thing to check. Uh, As well, ASIC's already taken PayPal to court over terms that only give businesses 60 days to dispute its fees. Otherwise, PayPal gets to keep those fees. There are no penalties there, of course, but it's a good reminder that the enforcement agencies will be increasingly interested in fairness in all of its forms. Well, from fair to farewell, that's all for this time. Remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes or email us at edge at gtlaw.com.au. And we've got some great guests still to come, including Louise Klamke and Elizabeth Avery on regulators, courts and novel theories of harm, and the great Professor Eleanor Fox on antitrust convergence and divergence in the US and around the world. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. Till it's done, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin.